0: Over the last three days, I've found myself waking up and looking for these images. Pictures of people who've been released as part of the hostage deal Israel negotiated with Hamas. The first pictures I saw were of people on buses. Red Cross vans filled with stunned passengers heading out of a nightmare. Then there were videos from inside hospitals in one, a gangly nine-year-old boy in glasses and sandals is steered around a corner. And then he sees his father and brother, and he breaks into a run.
1: Yes, yes, that that I, I found an incredible movie. I watched it with my family several times.
0: Journalist Peter Beinart has been looking at these images, too.
1: I mean, I think, right, any of us who are parents can just immediately identify with that.
0: There are also images of Palestinian women and minors, their families given just hours' notice of their imminent release from prison. A joyous celebration as 23-year-old Malak Suleiman finally arrives home in East Jerusalem after six years in an Israeli prison. Each day since Friday, a few more hostages and detainees have emerged, a handful at a time, and the Israeli assault on Gaza has largely come to a stop. How would you characterize the deal that led to the release of both Israeli hostages and Palestinian detainees? Like if you had to use one word, what would you say?
1: I think it was necessary. And um, so I'd use the word necessary. But I also think it's part of the ongoing tragedy. And it's part of the ongoing tragedy, first of all, because of course, Most of the hostages that Hamas holds have not been released, um, and they should all be released unconditionally. Um, Secondly, it's part of the ongoing tragedy of the, the, the immense suffering of the people in Gaza, but it's also a tragedy in another way. It's a tragedy because probably the lesson that some Palestinians will draw from this is what got these prisoners released was the acts of October 7th.
0: So violence
1: works. So violence works, yes.
0: You know, you called this temporary ceasefire necessary. I had another word in my mind when I thought about how I'd characterize what's been happening. My word was fragile. I wonder if you'd agree with that, too.
1: Yes. It's certainly fragile. I mean, there have been reports that Israel is still shooting... In Gaza, there have been reports that Hamas has not been... It, it is it is very fragile. There's not much evidence that the Israeli government is thinking very coherently or thoughtfully about what it does after it deposes Hamas from power in Gaza. And the lesson, I think, of, 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 of Israeli and Palestinian history is that Israel often acts to destroy the Palestinian adversary of the moment, and therefore creates the conditions of future Palestinian adversaries, sometimes which are even more difficult to deal with.
0: Today on the show, what this fragile, temporary, necessary ceasefire has gotten us, and what it hasn't. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. see terms at slash credit card. When did you know that a deal was final? It felt like there were so many moments where it was like a deal's coming, a deal's coming, and then it really didn't get going until Friday. Was there a moment where you were like, okay, I think this is going to happen?
1: Well, I mean, I was just looking at the news pretty constantly. And then, you know, we got into Shabbat, so I don't check my phone or computer or anything like that. So, so over Shabbat, people were kind of Speculating and talking, but we were then kind of we, we were we were in the dark in terms of of what the latest developments had been. But but I did print out um, before Shabbat on Friday the pictures and names and stories of the of the first batch of Israelis who had been released, and we all kind of sat there looking at them. You know, my family and me, and um, it was just immensely immensely moving. I mean, I think this I think just like the issue of Palestinian prisoners, for Palestinians brings up these deepest, deepest issues for them. Um, This issue of of Jews in captivity brings up very, very deep issues. I mean, even if you look at, read the Talmud, you know, thousands of years ago and look at medieval Jewish commentators, the question of the responsibility of redeeming Jews in captivity is a very, very important issue, one with very, very deep roots. In fact, it's one of the things that Jews who pray every day thank God for every morning is that God releases captives. And so I never had an experience in my life where I saw this kind of manifest in his, in his overwhelming way, the sense of the imperative of releasing captives to see it play out in real time was hard to describe.
0: I'm wondering if you can slow walk me through how a deal to exchange Israeli hostages for Palestinian detainees was even possible in the first place. Because it felt to me over the last week or two like forces outside of Israel and Hamas were trying to almost manifest a deal. Like if you looked at the Washington Post for the last two weeks, you'd see articles pop up saying, a deal is imminent, you know, a deal is on the table, they just need Israel to agree, and then nothing would happen. And it, it just felt to me like there was a pressure. On Israel, both within Israel but also from outside?
1: Yes, I think that's true. There were a lot of people working on this. I think the Biden administration wanted this. I mean, first of all, there are Americans being held hostage. And also, I think the Biden administration just wanted this as a tangible sign of some kind of success, that, that there had been some positive humanitarian effort from its policies. Remember, Biden is being pretty fiercely criticized among a lot of Democrats for America's support for Israel's kind of destruction in Gaza. But I think what happened in Israel was that over time, the political protest and organization by the hostage families who've been really, really heroic forced the Israeli government to kind of tilt its calculation a bit more in the direction of hostage release, a prisoner exchange deal was not something that the Israeli government was that appears to have been that interested in early on. Its priority was the bombing and then the ground invasion. And it was the political pressure that was created in Israel that may have pushed it to to do this earlier because the the government did not want to take a pause in the fighting. The, The government's logic was if we pause the fighting, we give Hamas a chance to regroup and we lose the initiative. And then it becomes harder to resume the fighting after a pause.
0: Hmm. You mentioned how protests from families of people who had been taken hostage were really important to sort of shifting the narrative here and what took place. Can you just describe what those looked like? Because for people who aren't in Israel, they may just not have a sense of of how powerful those families were from the beginning.
1: Well, first of all, just the scale of what happened on October 7th was so massive. And then Israel, certainly kind of Jewish Israel, is a fairly small place. So it's a place where people are very connected to one another. And it has a very, even though it's a very divided society, I mean, Jewish Israelis were at each other's throats about judicial overhaul just not too long ago. It's also a, a country with a, with a very high degree of social solidarity. Again, which is, which comes out of the Jewish experience in general, the, the sense that, you know, there's a, there's a phrase in Hebrew, "Kol right? All Jews are responsible for one another. And so this this is a strong ethos. And I think there's been a strong ethos in Israel that you don't leave, leave people behind, soldiers or civilians. And so these families, many of whom spoke very, very eloquently, they were able to, to, to use this to, to reach out to other Israelis in the government and saying, you have a fundamental moral responsibility to release our families. A three-year-old girl is in Gaza. My aunt and cousin who is 12. How can you put a price on a three-year-old girl? We need them back now at any price. And many of them actually pushed for a deal that would involve Palestinian prisoner release. Some of them called for even what's called all for all, um, which was basically mm-hmm. that all the the israelis in captivity would be released even including the soldiers who i think hamas is most unwilling to release in exchange for all palestinian prisoners held in israeli prisons i don't think that's likely but in a way that would be thousands of people that would be huge numbers of people yes is in, in what they did in a way they because of their experience they were able to challenge the political assumptions of the discourse in israel in a way that nobody else could do
0: yeah It seemed like Israelis and Palestinians were not really in direct contact, like everything was going through Qatar. Qatar was speaking to Hamas, the U.S. was speaking to Qatar and Israel. What does that say to you about the state of the war right now and communications between these people who really are living in very close quarters? They are neighbors.
1: Right. Qatar played this crucial role because Qatar talks to the Israelis, even though they don't have diplomatic relations, and Qatar has good relations with the United States. But some of the Hamas leaders uh, abroad live in Qatar. One of the challenges was not always, I think, clear whether those leaders in Qatar, whether they really, how much influence they really had over the Hamas leaders who were actually in Gaza. But I think more broadly, your point is right, which is that although Israelis and Palestinians live side by side with one another, I don't think often the sense of understanding of the other society is very good. And in some ways it's worse than it used to be because it used to be more common for more Palestinians to come from the West Bank and Gaza and work in Israel and there would be more interaction. There's been less of that over the last decade or two as as Gaza has been more closed off and as Israel has brought in many guest workers. In fact, that's part of the reason that you had these people who were taken uh, as hostage from Thailand, for instance, because Israel has essentially replaced a lot of Palestinian labor from the West Bank and Gaza with with people who come in from places like Thailand. And so, and I I don't think the Israeli media does a very good job of of helping Israelis understand what Palestinian discourse is like. I don't think even the American media often does a very good job of understanding that. And I think that's part of the, the kind of more fundamental problem here is that we don't often have a good understanding of how Israel or America's behavior is being perceived among Palestinians and what kind of political response that's likely to create.
0: We'll be right back after a quick break. When the ceasefire took effect Friday morning at 7 a.m., Hamas released two dozen people, among them family members who'd lived in a kibbutz right close to Gaza, but also farm workers from Thailand. I asked Peter Beinart how it was determined which hostages would get to go free.
1: It seems that Hamas was more willing to release, as you saw, the elderly and and women and children, that it's been most resistant to releasing people of fighting age, certainly men, but even women who uh, it deems to be of fighting age. Um, the, the tie a release seems to have happened on another, a different channel, a separate channel from the one that Israel and the United States were involved in, where the Thai leaders went to make their own appeals um, and were able to to break through and get some of these folks released. Um, you know, there's still so much we don't know about this situation. We still don't, you know, not all of these people were taken hostage by Hamas. It seems It seems like there were other Palestinian groups or even, you know, just, just random individuals who took hostages. We. St- I still don't know. You know, I haven't seen reporting which suggests for sure that Hamas has now consolidated all of those people under its control. I mean, what really tempers the the kind of joy of this moment is just the recognition that there's still so many hostages there. And the prospects of getting them all out still seems so distant and remote. I, my fear is, I, I desperately hope this is not the case, but my fear is that there could still be hostages in Gaza for years to come.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: I mean, Gilad Shalit w- was held in prison, I think, for five years. You know, Gilad Shalit was an Israeli soldier who was taken taken by by Hamas, and then ultimately Israel released more than a thousand prisoners to get him back. Now he was he was a soldier. The circumstances were not exactly the same, but I, I just worry that getting everybody back soon um, will be really difficult. But I, I again, I, I I deeply hope that I'm wrong. In
0: exchange for this first round of hostage releases from Hamas. Israel set free some 39 Palestinians who'd been detained, mostly women and children, which, to me, raised a question of why all these Palestinians were in Israeli custody in the first place.
1: This has been an important, really important human rights question for many, many, many years. Yes, Israel will say, you know, these people, these Palestinian prisoners did these things. They were involved in an attempted stabbing or some kind of attempted act of of violence. But it's really important to remember that in some of these cases, those people were never brought to trial because Israel can hold people in the West Bank for pretty long periods of time without trial. And secondly, that even if they go to trial, these are not trials that would meet the basic standards of due process that we would think of, that while Israeli Jews in the West Bank live under civil law, and so they do have due process, Palestinians in the West Bank live under military law. Uh, they're not citizens. And uh, the prosecution rate, I think, uh, is, is over 99 percent, according to to human rights organizations. So like 99 percent are found guilty, uh, found guilty. Yes. And there have also been reports of very, very bad treatment by Israel of Palestinians in prison. And there's also been a lot More Palestinians who've been taken prisoner over the last month. And so, to me, I don't want to suggest that these things should be connected in the sense that Hamas should have released these people immediately, unconditionally. But separately, we should have been already having a conversation about the rights of Palestinian prisoners. And the United States, which is deeply implicated in this, should have been acting as we should in any country that where our, where our taxpayer money is going, to, to make sure that our money is not subsidizing the, the, the mistreatment of people who are in an unjust criminal system. And it's sad to me that it has taken this to make Americans finally aware of some of these realities.
0: You know, over the weekend, it, it did seem like there was almost a possibility that this ceasefire would slip away. Hamas was saying not enough aid was coming through to Gaza fast enough. And there was an incident where Israeli troops did fire on Palestinians in Gaza who were reportedly trying to return to their homes. How much do you know about those incidents? And and what did you make of them in the context of, you know, how, how strong the ceasefire is, how maintainable it is?
1: The firing on Palestinians who tried to return to their home, you know, reflects a huge outstanding issue here, which is are Palestinians ever going to be able to return to the northern part of the Gaza Strip? This is one of the most overcrowded places on earth to begin with, and Israel has laid waste to the northern part of Gaza. So it's concentrated all these people in the southern part of Gaza because they can't leave Gaza. And so... It's not at all surprising that people would want to return. You know, they're trying to go back to their homes to see if anything is left of them, to see if they can recover possessions. They may they may have family members who are not able to leave. And the fact that Israel fired on them, I think, opens a question that really needs to be at the front and center of, of, of political conversation in the United States, which is, Is Israel ever going to allow Palestinians to return to the northern Gaza Strip? Does Israel have plans to try to force Palestinians even out of Gaza altogether? There have been reports of various different people in the Israeli government who have tried to suggest this. There's a a fluidity and a lack of clarity to what Israel's plans for Gaza are. And there are good reasons to be really worried about that.
0: Yeah. What about the aid? I mean, there was this sort of holdup in aid, and then it seemed like things were flowing again.
1: Yeah. The need for aid is, is just overwhelming, given the level of destruction. And um, I worry that even with this increased amount of aid for a few days, it won't even be a drop in the bucket in terms of what's necessary to start to rebuild after all the destruction.
0: You and I are talking in the middle of this pause and fighting From the beginning, there's been the idea that Israel may extend the ceasefire if more hostages are released. Do you feel like this temporary ceasefire is something that will be built upon?
1: No, it doesn't feel stable. I I could be wrong. I I hope I'm wrong and that it does continue and become something deeper, but there is still a pretty strong desire and the Israeli government has been pretty explicit about this to go into parts of southern Gaza. Remember Israel basically told Palestinians to leave northern Gaza and has gone in and reduced a lot of northern Gaza really to rubble. But what Israeli officials are saying is they now want to go into parts of southern Gaza where they also believe that there there is a Hamas presence. And I really worry that we're in a pause but that the slaughter that we've seen will resume and that that will make what has already been a kind of catastrophic situation for people in Gaza even worse.
0: Yeah. As I was getting ready for this interview, thinking about this hostage deal, I couldn't help but linger on the fact that this deal came too late for dozens of Israelis. Hamas has said 50 captives were killed in Israeli air raids. Do you think there's any world... Where people in Israel say, we can't bring back those dead. We, it's time for something
1: different here. I don't think we know yet what the long-term political consequences of this will be. Many Israeli political observers suggest that when Israel next goes to election, there will be some kind of political earthquake because Netanyahu and his Likud party have been so discredited by their inability to keep Israelis safe on October 7th. What I think we don't know is is what will replace that. I think what's really important is can people in Israel and can people who care about Israelis and Palestinians around the world, very much including the United States, try to think about offering a different political vision that then Israelis would have as an option when they choose a new government. And I think the people who have stood out to me have been leaders among the Palestinian citizens of Israel about 80% of the Palestinians under Israeli control, those in the West Bank in East Jerusalem and in Gaza, which is under Israeli control in a different kind of way, they're not citizens. And often their lives are pretty remote from Israelis, but 20% of the Palestinians under Israeli control are are citizens of Israel. They're often called Arab Israelis. And they're this fascinating group of people because they're Palestinian, um, but they understand Israel Really intimately. And if you look at the statements by some of their political leaders, I'm for instance, who's a member of the Knesset, or some of the leaders of this group, Om Din Be'yachad, standing together, what they have said is, is is a clear condemnation of what Hamas did on October 7th and an explanation to other Israelis that ultimately this problem of violence, which Israel suffered so terribly on October 7th, can't be disconnected from the problem of the structural violence of Israeli oppression. And they, I think, in their very lives, and as well as in what they say, they offer a, a vision of what mutual coexistence with dignity and freedom and security for everyone would look like. And I hope that in some way, they could change over time, Israeli politics, because unfortunately, Palestinian citizens have generally been marginalized in Israeli politics, but also they could be a voice for changing Palestinian politics. So there could be Palestinian voices that are empowered, that speak in a language that's very different than Hamas, which is a language that says that Israeli Jews and Palestinians need to live together equally and need to all be safe together.
0: Peter Beinart, I'm really grateful for your time and your analysis. Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Peter Beinart teaches journalism at the City University of New York. He also writes a great substack you should check out. It's called The Beinart Notebook. And that's our show. What Next is produced by Paige Osborne, Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Madeline Ducharme, and Anna Phillips. We are led by Alicia Montgomery, with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you back here next time.